You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Kat Allinger. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Hello. 
Czechtember continues with a look at Oil Lamps, the 1971 film from Juraj Hertz. It's based on a novel by Jaroslav Havlček, in which our protagonist, Stefa Kilinova, who's played by Eva Janjurova, she is the vivacious 30-year-old daughter of a wealthy couple who agrees to marry her cousin Paul, who has accumulated very large debts as an Austrian army officer. Paul refuses to work or consummate the marriage as his health steadily declines. Why? Because he has syphilis. First time I watched this movie, I had no idea that he had syphilis until maybe three quarters of the way through the film when somebody very outright says, oh, he has syphilis. <laughs> Makes it a lot easier to understand when you know that going in. The French disease. <laughs> the love disease, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah, the love disease. Too. Jonathan, when was the first time you saw the film and what did you think? Uh, well, I think I first saw it about 10 years ago, 2011, and it was probably the fourth film of Hertz's that I had seen. I did like it the first time I saw it, but I think for a long time it was always a little bit under the shadow of The Cremator and Morgiana. And uh, I think the f most sort of powerful thing for me on the first viewing was Petr Cepek's performance and the sort of degeneration that his character goes through and especially that laugh that he has, that kind of giggling laugh. I think as I've watched it more, I've come to love it more. I've come to appreciate it more because I think it's maybe one of Hertz's subtler films. It's one of his more low-key films, at least in comparison with something like Morgiana. So yeah, I think definitely it's one that's grown on me the more I've seen it. And how about you, Kat? Yeah, I saw it several years ago. Obviously, I've been on here before talking about my love for Uri Hertz. I just love everything that I've seen that he's done, which is most of his work. I haven't seen everything, but I've seen most of it. Unfortunately, some of it is difficult to get hold of. And some of his early films I've seen without subs, and I don't speak Czech, so you know that's not very helpful. I really love this one. My favorite Hertz film, though, of all of them is Sweet games of last summer and i see this as like a bit of a continuation of that it's just a lot darker but i'm a sucker for costumes and hertz really just nails it with the whole fantasy ecla look there's like scenes in this film actually that especially skipping ahead here but when she's in the barn that remind me of john roland's fascination just with what she's wearing and standing in this barn. And so I just absolutely love it. But I'm I'm like, if I love something, that's it. I just love it. So I'm probably not the best person to ask when it comes to, like, critical opinion. Because <laughs> I'm just like, oh, look at the hats. Look <laughs> at the dancing people. Oh, they've got, like, a little woman with a beard dancing and that's like basically my level that I interact with film <laughs> but I love her I absolutely love him I think that's a really great connection though I think to to reference the Van der Siecla because I think this is the most Van der Siecla film that you could have isn't it literally beginning at the new year you know 1899 to 1900 and uh, the way it's set up, I think, with that credit sequence where you have that kind of like Art Nouveau style imagery. Yeah, I think that's true, too, about the connection with Sweet Games of Last Summer. And it shares at least one of the cast members, doesn't it, with that one. And uh, it's interesting because I think that he described The Cremator as his expressionist film and then... 
uh, Sweet Games of Last Summer as his impressionist film. And I think you could say that this is his secessionist film in the, you know, secession is the sort of Czech term for Art Nouveau. So this is very much, I think, his Art Nouveau film. Yeah, and I love that about Hertz. I just love one that he's always really experimental. Every single film has a different sort of signature to it. And two, that he always brings in like, you can see he's drawing from art and from literature as opposed to a purely cinematic thing, which I think is true of a lot of the Czech New Wave because there wasn't that access to cinema that people in the French New Wave had. They were drawing from art, literature, philosophy, and you see it a lot in, or even in people like Zhuowski, Borowczyk, people that come out of Poland, people that like this almost like painterly approach to, to film. And Hertz could go really over the top with that. He wasn't afraid to experiment, which I just love. He would just throw everything at it. And so his films, a lot of the time, are like really visually opulent, which of course is like my my thing but this is like a more of a toned down version of morgiana visually as well it's like it's a nice sort of middle point between that and uh sweet games so he's not just randomly through i think he that you can see a continuation through his films he's not just throwing things in for the sake of it but there's definitely experimentation What's remarkable is that there is that continuity from the cremator, especially to this one, and then on to Morgiana. And yet, like when you think of what has happened between making the cremator and then making this film, is it within that sort of couple of years, there's this whole sort of transformation of the film industry. So basically you have the Soviet invasion and then you have this crackdown, which takes place sort of 69, 70, and the sort of film industry is re-centralized. And basically Hertz, I think, felt that he was in a very difficult position at this point. And he had a few projects that he was wanting to make. I mean, uh, there was an adaptation of Alfred Jarry's novel, The Super Male, that he was wanting to do. And then a couple of adaptations of other Fouque, Ladislav Fouque novels. And I think that was really the path that he was going to go down. And so he felt like at this point, basically, that his whole career was derailed. And uh, I think this was basically a kind of like a compensatory project, as was Morgiana. And yet when you actually look at it from the outside, I mean, it doesn't seem like that. It does seem that there is this great continuity, I think, from the style of the cremator through this and then on to Morgiana. So it's interesting that, you know, despite his own experience where he felt that he was doing projects that were kind of like second best choices, I mean, it does seem that they are very much in a similar vein, really. And I think he was one of the few filmmakers, actually, who was able to kind of maintain that continuity into the 70s. Yeah, because he was going to do Fuchs of Mice and Moose Shaber. Mm, yeah. Which is a fucking bonkers. Yeah, novel. it's I crazy. I've really <laughs> seen what he did with that, which is had an English translation, by the way, for anyone listening. You can actually get that and it's worth reading, but it's so surreal. I think with this one, it's not outright. So a lot of people know him from his more horror type films. But he did do drama as well. But this one does have aspects of gothic grotesque in it as well. And it also has that kind of uh, continuation in, in a focus on madness and violence, which obviously you can see across his career. He seemed particularly drawn to madness. And then he do do the same thing again with Morgiana. So you see that continuation of themes, even though he was so... Well, he was really, really compromised by the Czech system. 
but he made some really interesting work in the 70s regardless of that so all power to him i mean beauty and the beast incredible the ninth heart so he was still able to do a little bit within this family friendly romance drama or fairy tale thing (laughs) but he just put a really weird and grotesque spin on it it's somehow in that tradition, I guess, of like the Hollywood studio system, isn't it? And the original idea of autorism, where basically, you know, you take on these projects which are in a genre that is kind of like an established, you know, popular genre at the time. But what you do is you steal in your own idiosyncrasies, your own visual style, and you kind of make it your own. And I think that's really what he did. I mean, Beauty and the Beast is a great example of that, isn't it? Of taking a genre that was very popular at the time where you see a lot of other Czech fairy tales, but he makes one that, I mean, it's basically like a horror film under the guise of a fairy tale. And I think another consistency too is that kind of psychological reality, isn't it? I think he's interested in that kind of interior view of events and it's the I guess the the gulf between you know reality and our perceptions of it and I think you know you could say well both of the main characters in in oil lamps I mean have this you know particular kind of introspective point of view which he kind of really delves into I think whether it's you know Shepa and her kind of dreams of you know of romance sort of marriage or it's you know, Pavel and then his kind of mental degeneration. I think that that's very much part of his aesthetic or part of his theme, isn't it, really? For anyone who's enjoyed The Cremator, it definitely has some similar threads. All that talk about class as well and uh, social standing, greed, jealousy. It's just not as horrific, although Paul's laugh is quite horrific it's quite disturbing as he he gets more prominent (laughs) he is so good in this and and she's wonderful as well and i it took me a few times to really kind of grasp onto the story especially some of the more subtle things like at the beginning when she's trying to get people to dance with her men to dance with her and they're like no you'll step on my feet and it's just like oh so she's kind of a loser i guess just a little bit and you know i said before she's 30 and not married which was kind of like a death sentence at this time so she's really desperate to get a man in her life so desperate that she does go to pavel and yeah uh he is very dastardly, this whole conversation. Is it his brother and his father that he's con- constantly talking with? God, the brother is a beast. I'm, I'm calling him Paul because my subs have him as Paul, but it is Pavel. But the brother is an absolute, just utter beast. He's revolting. I find him worse somehow. Yeah. He's, he's, yeah, he's a more unpleasant character because I think he never does anything nice. And there's, there's not even the, you know, at least with Pavel, you have that kind of, you know, sort of glamour of being this kind of like, you know, Austrian soldier and you have that sort of dashing quality. But yeah, Pavel, there's really nothing nice or pleasant about him at all, is there really? He's just beastly and like really like Neanderthal. And I feel really sorry for that maid, Polly who just seems to attract the sadistic attentions of both brothers. And you only ever see her when she's sort of shrieking and running away from one or the other or just looking really freaked out. But that whole farm setup that they've got is just really weird. The father is like some sort of cuckold 
guy in the background who has no authority <laughs> who got the, the it's just a really weird setup in in their farm it reminded me of uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill with the, the weird father <laughs> yes. and his two sons. <laughs> it is. And then Stepha's family are like really into sort of social mobility. And, and and you just think, how are these related? Like, how the fuck are these people related? Because they're like the total opposite, her family. I think it's the wife, isn't it? I think Stepha's mother is the, the the sister of the father of Jan and Pavel, isn't it? And but yeah, like you say, it's kind of like just different, kind of but equally kind of unpleasant situations, aren't they? Really, I think going back to that idea of the Gothic and the way the Gothic, I mean, I think is a sort of subtle presence here. I mean, the I think that you know the Velrikovsko or the Velrikovsko farm, it is a kind of like a Gothic location, isn't it? Because it there is this sort of whole backstory, there's this sort of historical legend around it about the, the original founder of the estate who is meant to have married like a, a a demon or a devil and this is this whole sort of like uh you know ghost story kind of history which i think it kind of establishes it really as this sort of damned or this sort of cursed environment i think oh it totally is a gothic film but just in a very very subtle way that people might not outwardly recognizes gothic but all the stuff about madness and in they talk a lot about you know if he'd had a child and inheriting madness and inheriting syphilis and that just seems very gothic to me as well although he's not so horrible he doesn't i'm jumping ahead again but pavel at least doesn't impregnate her he he spares her that well he can't can he i think he's impotent from the syphilis syphilis i think so I like the bit, well, we're again, jumping ahead, where he just brings in that standing, <laughs> <laughs> that standing guy. That's just horrible, isn't it? Yeah. Without the- telling her, it's just kind of like. Stuntcock! 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 You know, well, you wanted a kid, but he doesn't think to discuss it with her first. He just sends his rapey, drunk friend round to service her. It's just the whole thing, when you look into it, is as fucked up as the family in the cremator. Which, again, you've got the patriarch in that is a total lunatic. And like you say, it's like, you know, the way that, that, uh, Manka, you know, the servant girl is treated is almost like a sort of like a horrible sort of exaggerated version of the way Shepper is treated. And it's just this idea that kind of like women are just like passed around, isn't it? And, uh, it's like how, you know, Manka initially she's raped by Pavel and then she's attacked later by Jan. Yeah, that's what I mean. He does rape her. So how does that function? If he's supposed to be completely impotent, that's the bit I don't understand. Not to go too much into the technical <laughs> things here. It may be like a later point. I think by the point they marry, I wonder maybe he's just sort of degenerated further from that point. But yeah, it's not really <laughs> made clear, I think. Yeah, because that seems to happen. And then the next minute he's pursuing Stepper. So... But like you said, that could have just been an amount of time has passed and he just hasn't shown that. But that confused me because that then brings about further sort of conflict between those two brothers who are at loggerheads. But Stepper, the reason I love her is I love her at the beginning. She is just like this really... That's why she reminds me of uh, the Sweet Games of Last Summer, which is very much about feminine sexuality and freedom and... Things like this, more in a more romantic, delicate way, I'd say. Uh, but when you meet her at the beginning, she's so free spirited. 
and she's surrounded by these fucking men, especially that grow man, the the tax collector whose parents or mother actually wants her to marry, like accusing her of being unladylike for drinking beer. He sacks her off for having a brazen, shameless hat. And he's like, you know, gets her to the this really serious talk, you know, are you going to give up the hat? And it's like, for fuck's sake, like she is constantly surrounded by these blokes. Apart from her father, he seems kind of open-minded and romantic himself. You're right about the gothic stuff. I was so reminded at times while I was watching this of things like... Um, Rebecca or um, Wuthering Heights. Yeah, it just felt like there were there was always storm clouds on the horizon, and she was just our always suffering female protagonist. Was that is so much a gothic romance? I think which does weirdly. I was talking about this in a completely unrelated essay recently. How strangely gothic fiction largely derived from that sort of model, but when it comes to film. You rarely see it in classic horror film. It, it, it tended to register more in the melodrama that Hollywood were doing. You, you didn't really see it so much in horror, apart from things like maybe The Innocent. But this idea of you get this young, very innocent, naive maiden who marries some cad or some guy with an awful secret. Like, they've always always got some fucking awful secret or some family curse. And it becomes like Bluebeard. As soon as she gets it, and the house is always in the middle of nowhere, like something like Jane Eyre and Rochester with his wife locked up in the attic. You know, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They fall for some guy thinking he's something he isn't. And it really is gothic in that way. Um, and then the thing I love about that, though, is quite often then within that mode, the, the innocent girl becomes very resilient and resourceful. And it's usually her, although a lot of them she's ultimately saved by a man. But then they were written in the 1800s, so you know, what you expect, but she becomes more resourceful and she matures. And you definitely see that in Stepper's character, although it has like a very cynical sort of end to it. It doesn't have that happy end to it. Well, this movie is so cynical. I love the beginning. You're talking about how it's changing to the 20th century. And then there's the one guy who's just like, you know, in a hundred years, there's not going to be war. There's not going to be this. And just like talking about how great it's going to be in a hundred years. And yeah, it was 1971 when this came out. So we still had a little bit of time, but still, I feel it's very much like hers going, uh, yeah, look at how deluded we were. We had two world wars coming up. We had Russian occupation, all this stuff. So let's just put these words into this guy's mouth and make him look a little bit like a fool because it is super cynical. I wrote down a, yeah, one of the lines that he says where, you know, in that introductory sequence, he says, you know, art will give the poet all the license that he needs. In a hundred years, there will be no oppressed classes or nations. And then you're, you know, you're putting this in a film in 1971, you know, sort of three years after the Soviet Union has invaded Czechoslovakia and of you know brought about this huge crackdown on free speech on art and so yeah i mean it's a very charged sentiment i think at this at this point the man who's going to come and rescue you is diseased with syphilis <laughs> <laughs> and also the way he kind of lies to her because he says you know you'll have freedom 
that's how he ultimately woos her and she doesn't because she is just really oppressed as soon as she gets into bed with him that's it her life as before is over there's no more theater one of the more touching scenes for me is when she bumps into her old friend from the theater near the end and she's like oh it's a new crowd and you know it's just she's become completely cut off from that but there are these these themes in it of like alienation isolation oppression and you can just tell that Hertz was obviously working out some frustrations in that film it's interesting because you have that kind of group of like younger people don't you who are kind of more free-spirited it's like the two actors that you see and then you see more of them in that sequence where they're kind of setting off that hot air balloon and it's as though there is this sort of promise that there is this more free-spirited more liberatory kind of lifestyle that she's kind of not quite you know part of I guess she's friendly with those people but still she's a slightly different you know maybe different age group and uh, you know there is this promise maybe of something different but yeah as you said by the end she sees the one of the actors again and then he's got this black suit on and I think he talks about you know the fact that he and his former acting partner that they're kind of like in business they have families and it's as though that promise has disappeared really by the end i want to talk a little bit about the title too just oil lamps because there is one very pointed scene at the beginning where there are a lot of lamps being lit and there's one lamp that gets lit and there's a couple in the background that are making out another time we have a man in the foreground and he's lighting a lamp and as soon as he lights it a woman's face appears and they start to snog and it's just like okay what is it with the oil lamps is it that this is the bed scene as well when they're the, their first their marriage night when he turns away from her and they're in the bed side by side but miles apart there's a massive great lamp in between them in the foreground I think it's got that sort of visual symbolism hasn't it in that it represents on the one hand I guess the you know the sort of the promise of the the wedding night because I guess as the light is dimmed you know that is when the sort of the wedding night begins but as you say visually it's used to sort of divide them isn't it uh in the shot so it's kind of like becomes the thing that actually symbolizes that the fact that they're not going to have this wedding night and it's like really the end of her romantic dreams I think we're making this sound so depressing but it really isn't (laughs) there are moments where it's pretty depressing (laughs) yeah but where else can you see a fight in a barnyard with a man in a smoking jacket full-on wrestling in the mud I watched this quite a few months ago, and then when I came back to it and was rewatching it for this, I kept mixing it up with Morgiana in my head, because there was the scene in Morgiana where I think it's the one guy that, that the quote-unquote good sister wants to be with, and he's in town, and I want to say he wears an outfit very similar to what Pavel wears in this. And so I was just like, oh, where's that scene where they have to like rush and get him, and he's in this bar, and... Nope, nope, that's not in here. But it was just like, oh, it's so similar to Morgiana in some of the stylistic choices. I mean, makes sense. Same director. There's a lot of walking on cliff edges as well, which is something that's used very differently in Morgiana. Oh, yeah. (laughs) One thing that's worth noting is that one of the 
uh, things that had to be cut from, it was actually cut from the finished film that there was a scene, uh, I think during the second sequence, the, one of the, one of the later sequences at the cliffs where, uh, Stjepa basically takes Pavel away. And in the original film, there is like a longer, or an, like a, like a sort of a, a later development of that scene where basically she, I think she takes him on her back and she sort of like pulls him away from the cliffs. And apparently the, uh, censors cut that out because there was something about the way that she was carrying him that seemed too sexually suggestive, which I mean, made makes no sense. But yeah, apparently they read it that way and he had to cut it out. But that scene, when you, when you look at that scene, it does seem a little abrupt, doesn't it? That, you know, he's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I wondered what happened there. I thought it was cut because in the next scene you then see someone dead. So I thought maybe it was just to try and put tension in there, you know, is it Pavel? But it does end like totally, you think he's going to go into some sort of monologue and then it just cuts and you're in another scene then. That makes a lot of sense now. There was another scene too, but I think that didn't even get to filming. And I think his initial idea for the big opening scene was that it would have this kind of like foggy, this kind of like misty, beautiful morning. And would it, it would be set like at this brothel. And basically the, you would see Pavel with a group of soldiers and they would be kind of like leaving or riding away from the brothel. And you would have like the prostitutes waving at him and that would be kind of like a basically a suggestion of how he has contracted syphilis but again yeah this was just not acceptable so <laughs> i kind of like the beginning that it has though i'm not sure if that would have maybe been better than what we see because i do like that sort of theatrical opening that it has with the curtains and you have this sort of theatrical scene which is really like a, a very kind of deliberate way of foreshadowing the marriage isn't it so i, I think i like the the beginning that it has really I do, but I hate it when they cut the brothels, which seems yeah, to be brothels a again. Yeah, brothels again. Yeah. Last time it was like adding brothel scene. This time it's, yeah, removing. <laughs> he should have sold it to Italy. I think that would have, he would have been able to put it back, I think. <laughs> you know what this movie needs? It's a really good brothel scene. I've got just the thing for you. Yeah, it's interesting in relation to the, you know, the representation of Stjepa because, um, I think as she was represented in the novel, she was a somewhat different figure. Um, and I think that the fact that she is like an outsider or that she's a kind of like a misfit was as much about her appearance. And, uh, I think Hertz really just wanted Eva Yanjurova to play the part. And I don't think he cared really that she didn't look like the character as she appears in the book. So I think in the book is very detailed. It's like incredibly kind of rich with, you know, physical detail. And, uh, it really goes into detail about how unattractive she is and how she just looks wrong, basically. And she's kind of like physically cumbersome. And I kind of like the fact that I think given the casting choice and I think the way Hertz represents her is that it's more, it seems like the way she is in the film is it's more of a comment on the fact that she's basically, you know, liberated, free spirited figure who defies, I think, you know, sort of traditional female or feminine sort of codes of behavior. And it makes it more of a comment, I think, on women's status. And I, I think, I, I think that was quite a progressive change that he made really. And I, I, I kind of like the way she is in the film, I think, compared with how she is in the book. Well, that's one of the things I really love about her character and the fact that she sort of unwittingly humiliates men, like with the, when she's doing the skittles and then she, she, 
it just keeps knocking all the pins down in front of Groman. You can't even get one, which seems like to be... This This is one of Hertz's films that has the least subtle humour, but that does seem like a direct comment on maybe his prowess or his... <laughs> She is just amazing, and we've we've talked about her so many times before. I mean, it is hard to imagine that this is the same woman that was in Coach to Vienna as well as Morgiana. I mean, she's just very much a chameleon depending on how she's dressed, how she's made up, and she's just terrific. She does kind of remind me, though, of the, the good sister. So she plays a dual role in Morgiana. The good sister in Morgiana is like a bit flighty and a bit naive. She is kind of like that, but just very exaggerated. She's like quite childlike um, in when you first meet her. And obviously she doesn't end up childlike. It kind of reminded me though of Borovchek's story of sin, just without the sex and the brothels, because obviously that has both. But this idea of a woman committing to a man who, you know, is is fucked up by war and, you know, has psychological problems and uses her and, yeah, it has a similar vibe. It's just, it's, I don't know, visually it's a bit more avant-garde, whereas Story of Sin is Borovchak's most sort of realistic film, if you could call it that. It's not quite, but Hurt's just seems to love to go over the top with things like costumes and that camera works really interesting in this as well because the dancing scenes i don't know if they're done on a handheld but there's a few scenes at the beginning where you're you're in the dancing scenes oh yeah you almost feel drunk yes yeah, spinning around and there's a lot of close-ups and swaying in and, and swaying out well, it is interesting what you're saying as far as him being a damaged man from war. I mean, I guess we could read the syphilis as more of like a PTSD type of thing and going untreated and just that he just keeps cracking up a little bit more. I mean, that's one way to read the film, I suppose. I mean, that relates to the shooting, doesn't it? He does a lot of shooting. And I guess you could you could read that as partly reflecting the fact, you know, he's no longer a soldier and just doesn't really have anything to do. I guess you could also take it as like displayed sexuality, isn't it? Because he can't do anything else. And, you know, there is that sort of phallic symbolism, isn't there, of the shotgun, which is very direct in one scene. Yeah, the war theme is interesting. So there's a couple of what looked like throwaway comments. There's Stepper's father makes that comment that they won't take responsibility for what happened to him for getting him to sign up to the cadets. So you get this idea that he was once quite idealistic and probably more innocent, but but being at war and contracting syphilis and whatever else happened to him, now he's just kind of cast aside with this limp, this obvious limp, people laugh at him, he's been humiliated, you know, it, there's all that in there, even though he is horrible. I agree with Jonathan, the brother is much nastier, because Pavel just seems to be, I mean, he's feckless, and he's, he, but he's also very mentally ill. So you can sort of understand that it's not totally him and he might have been a better person if he hadn't been to war. Now he's like nobody and or just a figure of fun. He can't have a child. He's, you know, he's had to marry his cousin to get money for the farm. 
he obviously cares what his father thinks about him. But even from that first scene when we meet him and she's sort of calling him a hero and, you know, oh, that must be really exciting. And he just cuts her off. He's just like really, you just think, who is that? He's just really rude to her because it's like he doesn't want to accept that. He doesn't want to sort of play along. Well, one of the reasons why he wants to marry her is because of the money situation. And that also speaks to a little bit about like him coming home, being disenfranchised, not being taken care of by the state who he fought for. And here he is broke and carrying all this debt. It's like you would hope that he would be taken care of by the state a little bit. And he's kind of a pitiable figure, I think, ultimately, isn't he? And I almost feel there's a kind of parallel with Jepper in that they are both outsiders, aren't they, in one way or another? And uh, there are certain sort of habits or things that kind of connect them. I mean, like the laugh, because, of course, she has that laugh, which I guess distinguishes her as something of an outsider at the beginning. That She's a little too loud for this society for the sort of feminine decorum that she's meant to you know respect and he of course also develops the laugh as his condition worsens so i feel that there is somehow some kind of weird affinity between them oh absolutely because her laugh is taken as humiliating by groman is it groman mm, yeah the tax collector like he really doesn't like it and he really but but with her it's it's not it's more because she's just being herself and that's too much for everyone whereas pavel he can't really be himself at all he's kind of stuck in this role she falls in love with him thinking he's this big hero soldier and even in that he's not and he can't even be a farmer like he's he's basically useless in every way she almost falls in love more with the uniform than with the man inside of it. Yeah, because it's a fairy tale to to her in in a way. She thinks it's a fairy tale. Yeah, fairy tales are a really good analogy, I think, isn't it? Because it is about this this woman that's trapped into this this marriage, and I mean, she is in this trap. And uh, it's interesting that you know, if you think that Hertz later directed a version of Beauty and the Beast, because this is almost like a reverse, isn't it? So where the Beast gradually reveals its humanity, you know, Pavel becomes less and less himself. Like you say, he becomes, you know, he degenerates, he becomes less and less human. So it's almost like an inversion of that story. And you know, I love a good fairy tale. <laughs> And I have been rewatching it as we've been talking and, and seeing, you know, you talked about the handheld camera and I'm seeing several shots of handheld stuff, especially, you know, you're talking about the dance. Of course, there's a lot of that, but even just like when they come to visit the farm the first time, there's a handheld shot of them coming through the gate and it's like, okay, so they've, they've got quite a, quite a bit of handheld footage in this. Well, that was the thing with Hertz is he would experiment with cinematography and obviously, with the cremator, they had a special lens made for the camera. Um, and then later with Morgiana, he would use the fisheye, which he said he later regretted using it so much. But it was just like, fucking hell, we got this fisheye. Let's just get some more on it, which personally I love because it kind of breaks conventions. Um, I do love the Hollywood melodramas, absolutely love them, but they're so formal in the way that they're shot. And there's often this convention with period stuff that it should be shot in this very understated, you shouldn't see any of the camera, and it's just almost theatrical. Whereas the the sort of period ones that Hertz does, and he did work in period settings a few times, so Sweet Games was one of them, Morgiana, this one, 
he uses things like very modern things for 1970, like a handheld camera, like a fisheye, like really strange angles, uh, like in Morgiana, a lot of the time you're in the cat's point of view, so you're basically on the floor. He did it in the cremator, extreme close-ups. And I just really love that aspect of his work. It's really playful. Uh, I don't think he was deliberately trying to break convention. He was just very experimental. I think he saw film more in a... Again, going back to what we were saying about how he drew from art and literature, more as a, like, painterly sort of artistic medium, if that makes sense. Which, again, you see in a lot of those Eastern European directors. They use it as a, like a, almost like they're using it as a canvas. He saw a lot of it in the Czech New Wave, but Hertz was always different. He was always like a bit of an outsider with his experimentations and the way that he would do things. And I think he continued that into the 70s, which was so rare, really, like a lot of the Czech films of this period, you know, because of the sort of inhibitions that were placed on filmmakers, I mean, are kind of visually flat. They're not very kind of formalist in, in that term that was often used in a negative way at the time. And, uh, you know, Hertz, I think, really is able to defy that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, his films, are, you know, in- including like the two fairy tale films, they're still visually very rich, aren't they? Th- those also use a lot of handheld cameras a lot of moving camera, a lot of point of view shots. I particularly love in this the use of point of view shots during the, you know, the promenading sequences. Uh, you have like two, don't you, two big sequences where the, you know, Pavel and Stepper walk out together and then you have her point of view of the faces. And of course, that's a way to emphasize the fact that, you know, the first time and the second time, the expressions are completely different. Oh, it's wonderful. And it is, like I think Mike said, it's dizzying as well because you're thrown into, especially that opener, you'll just throw, and then there's another dance outside as well where you're just, you feel like you're being ricocheted around, (laughs) around this parade of faces. And it's just such a Hertz thing to do. I love a lot of the Czech fairy tales and the stuff, a lot of it was, you know, made for TV and stuff. But like Jonathan said, it, technically it's very flat, very sort of, you know, whereas Hertz always had to exaggerate everything. Like costumes exaggerate. Like her fucking hats could be a film in and of themselves because that one hat she's got at the beginning, there's a whole story in that fucking <laughs> hat. It's huge. And he just really has to ramp it up on everything. And he, and he continued to do that in the seventies where you saw a much more pragmatic kind of, you know, approach to making fairy tale films, which I still love them. But I think when me and Mike and Sam talked about the little mermaid, which has wonderful avant garde costuming, but the cinematography in that is actually very flat. There's not a lot of camera movement in it. And I think that was something we discussed when we talked about that film, The Czech Little Mermaid. The director just used costumes to make it look a bit more. But if you look at the camera, the camera's barely moving. Where in this one, you're being thrown around here, there and everywhere when the maid is being chased around. That's another standout scene for me by the brother chased around that courtyard or whatever it is in the in the and you are you know following him and then she's being shoved to the floor you know it's the sort of thing you see in a bloody slasher (laughs) 
not a fairy tale film. There's just so much energy in that scene. And I, I think as well as like the fluidity of the camera work, there's also that fluidity of the kind of movement from one scene to the next, which I guess is something that he did in a very overt and innovative way in The Cremator, where you have that literal kind of like, you know, conflation of what of the last scene with the next scene but i feel here too there is a sense in which the film it just kind of flows doesn't it from one scene into the next you're not really aware of like the time shifting i guess the only kind of markers of that are like this the way the seasons change or i guess the way her costumes change but there is this sort of like head-on kind of you know, development isn't there where, you know, you're kind of just being taken on this. It's as though it's like this inexorable path kind of into doom, isn't it? And, uh, you know, there are no kind of markers of time. And I think that's another thing about his movies that there's that kind of just fluid development. Well, they just seem to exist in their own little universes, don't they? Even in something like The Cremator, which is supposed to be Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia, it exists in this really strange little bubble its own time, its own place. Like in Cremator, one minute it's Christmas and then it's not. You you just don't know, you know, what the timeline is. And he does that so much, I think, which is another thing I love about his films. There is that very fluid, like Jonathan said, like a very fluid approach to things. I just noticed the cinematography, I'm not... I'm not aware of his work really. Dodo Simon Simon Kick. He was also the cinematographer on Sweet Games, which is interesting. He also worked with Yakabisco. I think he directed. He, he, he ah, I, I think he photographed my other favorite. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think Deserter and the Nomads. I think the the second, the, the one with the craziest camera work. So yeah, I guess that that makes sense. I think. <laughs> I noticed too that the screenwriter that's credited with, uh, hers is, um, his only, well, his first credit, which was his only credit before Oil Lamps, was also working with, uh, Jakubisko working on, um, is it Years of Christ is how you normally see it translated? Crystal Vrocki? Yeah, that's, that's Lubo Dote now. And actually, I believe, uh, what you see, like in the credits, is it says Václav Šašek, uh, Lubo Dodnal, Your Eye Hurts, and I think the, the story was, according to Hurts, that uh, Šašek wrote the first draft of the script and basically brought it to Hertz. Hertz said, basically, I like the story. You know, I like the idea of making this film, but, you know, you can't write, basically. So I'm going to have to get somebody else to re- rewrite the story, uh, rewrite the script. And so basically got Dodnal in. And I think he and Hertz, Donal and Hertz basically sat down and just rewrote the whole thing from the novel. So, yeah, I think basically that is Dodnal and Hertz's work, really. That's Hertz's version of it. I mean, Shashek might have a different account, but that's the that's the that's the story given in Hertz's memoir. So, <laughs> Jakubisko was Slovak as well, wasn't he? As was Hertz, and he was like had this weird sort of magical realism. This is I know Jonathan's a, an expert in Slovak things. Is that something Slovakian, maybe? That's definitely true, I think, in Jakubisko's case, because I think his influence uh, was uh, like naive painting and the kind of Slovak folk culture, the culture of like East Eastern Slovakia, which I believe he was actually encouraged to uh, kind of emphasize when he was at Farmu. So I think for Jak- on Jakubisko's side, I think there is definitely that, uh, you know, sort of cultural dimension to that. Uh, of course, there was a surrealist movement in Slovakia too, as there was like on the, 
you know, in, in, in the Czech lands, uh, in Slovakia, this tended to take a more sort of mythical form. It tended to be based more in sort of folk traditions, fairy tales. So I guess that would apply to Hertz as well. Hertz is, I think he's somewhat of an unusual figure in that he is Slovak, but tended to work more like on the Czech side of the industry. So I feel he's less attached somehow to the sort of Slovak background than was Jakobisko. He did feel like an outsider, though, didn't he, to the whole FAMU lot and studied pepper and 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 took a different route into film and then worked with Brinich as a who was his mentor. I think the the interviews that I have found with him, there seems to be like a bit of a they didn't accept me at FAMU. They, I was always a bit of an outsider. And his work is funny because the cremator kind of gets put in the Czech New Wave, but like now. But at the time, he always felt like an, an outsider to that and was just basically doing his own thing. That's why his work stands out. It is different. It's like much less concerned with political things as well and much more concerned with things like the gothic and fantasy and and these sort of eternal themes like madness greed obviously certain politics would creep in but it wasn't as overtly political as some of the famu stuff i mean he, he was much more interested i think in genre cinema you know right from the beginning like i mean his first film uh his first feature film sign of cancer i mean he's basically like a murder mystery his second film was a kind of like comedy musical i guess and uh, so i think right from the beginning there is that interest in genre which i think actually served him well through the 70s because i guess he could make films within a genre as in you know the fairy tale films but use that as a vehicle you know for his own sort of visual style his own themes and i think that was maybe one reason why he was able to adapt better than i think a lot of the new wave directors were yeah i think like you say there was always that sense of exclusion i think based on the fact that he had not been at famu and there's that story about i think it was yaroslav kuchera the cinematographer saying you know that i will i won't i think this was on pearls of the deep you know which was Hertz's first film saying yeah, i'm not going to work with you because you know you didn't study at famu like who who are you basically and then he comes back and does more Guiana. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once he proved himself. He did feel, though, that he was, he was, yeah, I think he was much more genre. He's the closest Czech cinema gets to a horror director. And I think that was something he was kind of proud of in a way. Cause well, especially he, later with like Ferret Vampire. Which is again, they weren't making horror film in in Eastern Europe. That, that's one of the things I love, actually. That you know, in these times of like elevated horror, out of people saying, "Well, you know, it's not a horror film." He was so proud to, you know, to say that you know, I am a horror director. I love horror. I believe. I believe there's even an interview where he said, you know, his favorite film that he had made was The Cremator. When he was asked why, he said, "Because it's a horror film." And yeah, I think there was always that embrace of horror, and I think that kind of wish that he could have made more horror films, really. And, uh, you know, I think that one of the sad things about his career is that he was never able to go quite as far as he wanted to do because, I mean, Ferret Vampire, I think in the initial script, it was a lot gorier. I think The Ninth Heart too, and yeah, there were things that he had to cut from from both of those. So I think had he had more freedom, he would have gone even further, I think, in that kind of gothic and, you know, sort of horror direction. You mentioned the lyricism of the film, and I completely agree. And I think a lot of that, too, has to do with the music and just another 
brilliant score by it's Lubush Fischer. Fantastic. As soon as you start watching it, you know, the second time, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember this theme. I mean, they play it quite a few times, but it just fits the film so well. Well, music is such an important part of, of Hertz's films. You get references to music all the time come up in them as well. He's obviously really loved music. But the musical aspects of this, because as Jonathan said, he did make a musical. Is it The Limping Devil? Which is a very strange film, and I've only ever seen subtitled, so I didn't have a bloody clue what was going on. But that that is a musical. And when when I remember when I first saw this one, thinking, oh, this looks like it's going to kind of be a musical but then it settles down after about 20 minutes but you do get in the first 20 minutes just all these big musical numbers like that are framed like they would be in a traditional music like a, like a conventional musical big ensemble everyone singing and dancing very choreographed and then it kind of that stops this stepper walks out of that world but i really love that aspect of the film that the promenade sequences too have that that military that parade music don't they and it's as though the, this is kind of like a dance or it's like this kind of musical number set to this music where everybody is like performing and parading themselves so i think it, it's also like a comment on the society isn't it that this is a society where everybody is you know on display you know to be looked at and to be approved by each other yeah, because there's a huge cast in this one compared to some of his other films. Lots of crowd scenes with lots of people and very, very busy in parts. And then, there, and then you've got that house, which is basically empty. <laughs> so it's, it makes like a nice counterpoint to that. Can I just say, though, every time I see this film, I want her to adopt that bloody kid. Yeah, I am. it's I so know, heartbreaking, softy. isn't it? <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> And that nun with the moustache, and it's just like, just give her the kid. And then you get that bit at the end. And even though I know what's going to happen, it gets me every time. It's like, just just go and speak to the nun. And then she just walks in and shuts the door. And it's just like, no! You could have had the little kid who looks like, a, you know, someone from Annie. Another reason why Jan is such a bastard as well, isn't it? That he just won't accept the child at the end. Yeah, and the, he's just flippant. You know, you see that little kid and you think, oh, maybe they've sorted something out and she's going to adopt this kid. And then he just, he flippantly sort of says, oh, I said we wouldn't accept his bastard. And that's it. And you're just like, oh. And then they're kind of discussing him taking Pavel's place with Stepper, which is just really insidious. And you just think she would be out of the frying pan into the bloody fire in that situation. And again, I think something that's different, I believe, from the novel, where I think the end of the novel has, I think, a similar development, but I think it's portrayed, as I remember, in a slightly more positive way, where it's about the fact, well, now she can, you know, get to work as a farmer, you know, she can find meaning in being, you know, in farming and in this sort of rural lifestyle uh, whereas, I mean, in the film, you know, you just get that final shot, don't you, of the gates closing and it's just total entrapment. Yeah, it's really, I think of all of Hertz's films, it's one of the most cynical endings. They generally don't have happy endings, <laughs> but, but it's very cynical. Like quite often, you know, you get a big thing happens and then 
you know, there's like a bit of a cynicism at the end or not a happy ending. But this one with the walking into the gates is like a, like she's damned is just ugh. <laughs> it's like that at the end. And it's a beautiful parallel too, isn't it? Because the, the opening of the film is the curtains opening, isn't it? And uh, you know, it's the, the optimism, the hope of the new century. Then the final shot is the gates closing, isn't it? And it's just, yeah, doom, damnation. Turn away, go after the little girl. <laughs> And you only see the girl through, well, you see her through glass, don't you, in the train? And then you see her through the glass in the window. And then the final time she's at a big distance, isn't she, from Steppa? So yeah, you never see her kind of like in this sort of direct or kind of like unmediated way. So I think that's very, in a very nice visual detail. Is Steppa, is she an actress? Because there's so many interesting photographs of her. And there's one part where they're out in front of a marquee and it looked like pictures of her. Yeah, I think it's alluded to, isn't it, that that was how she was in her past. And she certainly knows that whole theatre crowd as well. Yeah, there's there's more of that in the book because basically the film is like the, the second and third part of the book. And then the first part is really more the kind of like backstory around the farm and then about her childhood and her youth. And so there's a lot more about how she's into sort of amateur dramatics, basically. So I think, it, yes, it's sort of like dropped into the film in a sort of much more sort of subtle way. It's not really as evident. But yeah, I think she she's part of this kind of like acting crowd and apparently is a very good actress. You know, she's she's probably better than I think the other people. And it's like initially something that gives her a certain kind of distinction. So again, it's another reason why it's so horrible that as the film continues, she's not really able to pursue that. Did you read this in English? Uh, I read it in Czech and I got about halfway. I, I, I was hoping to finish it actually for the, the episode, but it's quite long and it's incredibly detailed. It's so like my vocabulary was really put to the test. A lot of the vocabulary is slightly archaic too. So, uh, I must admit it, it did somewhat defeat me. And, uh, I think it does deserve a translation though. And, uh, I would compare it maybe with somebody like Thomas Hardy. Maybe it's that kind of, you know, that kind of literature. No, I get that. I love Thomas Hardy, though. Yeah, I think he's seen as the master of like psychological realism. I think that's the sort of the term that's usually attached to Havlicek. But uh, what I was surprised by was that the novel was actually written in the 1930s and then it was revised later in the 40s. So it was actually a lot later than the setting. And yet, I mean, it, it, it does read like a, a novel of the period in which it's set. So yeah, interesting that he too, just like Hertz, is kind of like looking back on an earlier period. Yeah, I was kind of reminded a little bit of like ragtime, um, just with that, the way that uh, we have the turn of the century and everybody looking forward to things and then everything goes to shit. Yeah, it's like a cynical 20th century perspective, I think, isn't it, looking back? Yeah, I can't even imagine in 1930 and 1940 when you know the world had already undergone one war and they were headed directly or embroiled in a second war, how naive people must have thought that the 20th century was going to be such a different time. I think if anybody is a fan of oil lamps and wants more sort of like gothic, depressing Czech cinema, I think they should watch a film called, um, it has two titles in English. One is The uh, Curse of the House of Hein and the other title is Uncle Cyril. And this is a film from the late 80s directed by Jerzy Svoboda, but is also adapted from a novel by Yaroslav Havlicek. This is about this uh, kind of gothic family. It's about this, this ambitious young man who marries into this basically very strange family. And 
in the family, you have this terrible secret, which is this kind of mad uncle who believes that he is invisible and he is played by Petr Cepek. So there's a direct connection. And I think there's a couple, couple... I've never seen this. I've never seen this. It's really good. It's much more, I guess, overtly gothic and overtly lurid than this film. But I think there's definitely a parallel. And again, similar themes about, you know, madness. You know, I think the curse of family, the curse of environment, heredity, childbirth. Yeah, so definitely one to check out. The only thing it doesn't have, I think, compared with this film, is it doesn't have as great a score so but in you know in other respects i think this is a worthy you know worthy counterpart really to oil lamps chepek has such a great look to him i love when he shows up in things and he is another actor who can just look so different like there he is in morgiana and he's got those massive uh mutton chop uh sideburns and it's just like is that the same oh yeah i guess that is the same guy and I'll see him in things like uh, I Killed Einstein, Gentleman. It's like, is that the... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is. He's one of those very familiar faces, but he's not nearly, to me, as recognizable as other people because he can just put himself into a role and you're just like, who is this actor? And then you look him up and you're like, oh, I've seen this guy a hundred times before. Oh, he's one of those faces, isn't he? I love that about Czech cinema is you get so many, and they were all like really solid theatrical actors as well, and they just turn up time and time again because there was a strong industry there despite the limitations. So there was a lot of opportunity for work, but you, you get, you start, after you start watching a few, you get your favorite faces and then you're just like, yeah. <laughs> It's very fluid too, isn't it? And uh, it seems that, you know, actors would be happy to just do a, like a major role in one film and then would just pop up as like a, you know, a face in one scene in another film. And uh, yeah, there is that kind of sense of, you know, the same people kind of like recurring, but like at different levels. And, you know, sometimes you'll just see somebody pop up at one moment. And uh, even on the soundtrack, which is something I found out recently, uh, you know, you have actually Josef Sommer who plays Hubitschka in Closely Observed Trek. Apparently, in this film, he's dubbing the voice of Jan. So, yeah, there's a, yeah, one of those other great performers there, uh, just as a voice. <laughs> I was looking up because this played at Cannes in '72, and there's a list of films that also played that same year. And it's just such an amazing time to see things like The Ruling Class, The Seduction of Mimi. I mean, it's just like uh, images by uh, Altman. Jeremiah Johnson, Das on Hill by Fleischman. There's just like so many films where I'm like, oh my God, what a year. Solaris played the same year. It's like, my goodness. There's a great story about that, actually, which Hertz tells in his memoir. I hope this is not too anecdotal, but there's, yeah, there's basically this story that, yeah, Hertz went to Cannes with the film. They actually allowed him to go you know, to present the film at Cannes in competition. And uh, apparently he could only go on the condition that he was accompanied by a Barrendorf official. So this official that he went with basically, I think was like an ex-prison officer. And so (laughs) basically the whole time that Hertz was there at Cannes, he just kept him like under lock and key. Like Hertz couldn't go to a party. He couldn't go to any event without this guy coming with him. And then... Uh, the story is that Hertz knew that Solaris was playing and he really wanted to see Solaris. And this guy said, Oh, I've heard that, you know, in France, they make uh, porno movies and they show porno movies. So I want to go to this porn theater. And so basically he took Hertz to this 
porn cinema and Hertz is saying, well, I'm sitting in this porn cinema with this, this Baron Delph official and I could have been watching Solaris instead. Right. <laughs> oh, God. That biography really needs an English translation. It sure does. It's really amazing. Does. Yeah, the stories. <laughs> and the name, too, is Great Autopsy. Brilliant title, I think. All right, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's episode. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate, and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is, with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. We'll be back next week with a look at Capricious Summer. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Jonathan and Kat. So, Kat, what is up with you? I've just done a video essay on Men of the Stone Women for Arrow, which they've restored that film. At last, a decent restoration of it. And I also got let into the grown-up films. I got to do The Seventh Seal for BFI as a folk horror. So, um, I'm quite sure... Some people are going to consider my commentary an act of sacrilege, but I have no regrets because I still maintain Seventh Seal as a horror film. I think that one's coming out quite soon as well, in the first UHD release for BFI as well. (laughs) It's just like, whoa. Also, the folk horror box set, which I know Mike is part of with the projection booth, 
my witch hammer video essay from the second run dvd has been ported over and i did a new commentary for that set on an italian folk like one of the uh, italians didn't really do much in the way of folk horror il demonio brunello rondi film talking of everything's about fellini he was fellini's one of fellini's script writers made this sort of very weird very political folk horror film in the early 60s which was also sergio martino luciano martino's first production things so like it was a convergence of all all my loves coming together that track so that's going to be on the folk chorus set which i when's that out mike i can't remember when that's out that's quite soon isn't it it's all out soon and check me out on patreon catalinger's confessions of a cine slut and jonathan how about yourself I'm going to be uh, doing some research on the film uh, Morgan, A Suitable Case for Treatment, which is uh, actually also related to gorillas, but this is David Warner meets a gorilla. And this is this uh, crazy 60s film about madness and performance and politics. It's a little bit forgotten these days. So I want to really look at the kind of how this film connects, I think, kitchen sink drama with Swinging London and with the kind of hippie culture. So it's a little bit of a break from Czech cinema. I've also just finished a chapter on Czech cult cinema, and I'm looking specifically at the crazy comedies. And this is for a collection which I believe will be called uh, Decolonizing Cult Cinema, and hopefully will be released uh, or published next year, although I'm not quite sure yet because of the you know current publishing schedules uh, being impacted. But uh, yeah, hopefully next year that will be coming out. <laughs> well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. <laughs>